Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Welcome back to Always on EM. My name is Venk Bellamconda, or Venk like Vankomyosin. And usually in the mid-month episode, we would bring a Grand Rounds recording to you. But today, we have something different. We have the second part of our content on sepsis. If you haven't listened to the first part, shame on you. It was pretty darn good. Completely unbiased take, of course. A couple keys to remember from that chapter. Our discussion, of course, involves Alex Finch, but also the amazing guest expert, Dr. Casey Clements. He is a highly decorated emergency physician and sepsis researcher in our department, and there's so many wonderful things we could say, but the most important thing you need to remember, he got a D in third grade math. Of course, I'm joking. The most important things to remember from that first chapter are that the history of sepsis care involves three parallel and related movements. First, there is an effort through a sequence of international consensus conferences to improve the diagnostic accuracy of sepsis. This began with SIRS plus infection, and then trying to be more specific through the use of SOFA and QSOFA scores. These are great at adding prognostication to the diagnosis, though they may under-recognize the disease compared with SIRS. Casey advocates for using them both, CMS is still using the SIRS, and eventually, a lot of the research seems to be pushing towards SOFA and QSOFA. In parallel to the work on diagnostics done by the consensus conferences, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign is also iterating through this time and putting forth a global charge to encourage the best practices in care by advocating for the best available science for sepsis at each point in time. Finally, thirdly, in the United States, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has established a quality of care measure that is known as SEP1. The name is confusing as it implies there is a SEP2, 3, etc., but they really do not exist. If you hear someone talk about SEP2 or 3, usually they're referring to the iterative definitions from the international consensus conferences. The SEP1 measure or SEP1 bundle talks about expectations for patients who are diagnosed with sepsis and septic shock. At its heart, these expectations do seem reasonable. Get blood cultures, check a lactate, give antibiotics, do this quickly, fluid resuscitate those who need it, and reevaluate your patient over time. The implications for hospitals, patients, and communities about compliance or adherence to the SEP1 bundle is huge. As of 2024, how a hospital performs on this measure will dictate the reimbursement the hospital receives two years later, such that hospitals that perform exceedingly well on SEP1 will be reimbursed more and those performing poorly will be reimbursed less. As you can imagine, this has the potential to affect services and care delivery to to all the patients in a hospital's community. And so, as Alex commented, there is a sense that there's a Hunger Games-ish element to this, where some communities are going to be competing with others to get the same funds. As Casey mentions, sepsis is one of the most expensive aspects of healthcare today, and all of this really funnels down to what we do in our emergency departments. We need to get this right for the patient that is in front of you and the patients relying on the hospital that you work at in the future. No pressure, right? Where's this discussion going to go from here? Let's find out. Without any further delay, let's jump back into the discussion with Alex and Casey. Okay, so we've talked about the diagnosis, the evolution, the history, uh, some of the politics, the reimbursement, but let's go back to the bedside and let's talk about history that we should be taking. What are the pearls and pitfalls that we can watch out for when taking a good history for a patient who might be septic? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I think one of the things that is clearly associated with severe disease that we need to pay more attention to is any history of altered mental status. I know that that's in QSOFA. Um, It's difficult to capture in electronic medical records when altered mental status is present or not. But if 
a patient has had a change in their baseline mental status, even temporarily, I think that that's a huge red flag. Uh, and I think that we tend to gloss over it a little bit. I know we, we're doing a lot of work in delirium here in older uh, persons, and it's in the same line with that. The, the likelihood of critical illness, the likelihood of decline, I mean, that is an end organ dysfunction, the, your most important organ, your brain. Um, and I think that, that is a, that's a pitfall for sure. Um, we also don't tend to ask about um, other symptoms of dehydration always. We, we, we do exams pretty well for dehydration, but we don't ask about you know urine output and dark colored urine and some of those things um, that could be important as well. But altered mental status is the big one. Casey, just a minute ago, you were talking about volume assessment. And I'd be really curious how you're assessing the volume of these patients. Are you doing things like orthostatic vitals? It's a really good question. I have not. Um, most of the time, if I'm considering a sort of severe sepsis in a patient, I would be a little bit leery to stand them up and walk them around. Um, but I, I think I haven't used orthostatics. Volume assessment is an entirely different discussion, right? So when Manny Rivers put out early goal-directed therapy, one of the really brilliant things about it was this idea of CVP. Yes, it involved a central line. But prior to 2001, the nephrologist would say if the ED doc gave 500 milliliters of fluid that we were drowning our patients, right? It's a can of Coke, really. Um, but uh, it, that CVP as a surrogate measure gave us permission to give a lot more fluid. Um, and some of these patients are needing you know, upwards of 50 milliliters per kilogram sometimes in true shock states. So it's a lot of fluid. Um, and fluid assessment is really important. Now, Back when early goal-directed therapy was still the standard, ultrasound people like you, Dr. Belenconda, tried to show that that IVC measurement was a really good idea of doing volume status. But the problem was is they had to compare it to the gold standard of CVP, which was flawed as a gold standard. And so it kind of didn't meet muster at that time. But we know that now in our hands, uh, ultrasound is a clearly important tool, and I use it. It's at least part of the, the, um, the toolbox for volume assessment. Um, certainly on exam, when you know, capillary refill is hugely important, particularly in, in kids and younger populations, but it's important. If you have a five, six second capillary refill uh, in, a, in somebody, that is a, a problem with volume. Um, the best volume assessment is going to be a passive leg raise, but the problem with that is, is how do you measure whether there was a change in cardiac output? And I don't know about you, but I don't float a lot of Swanscans catheters these days, uh, so I don't really have direct measurements of cardiac output. Uh, we, with the passive leg raise, you can use pulse pressure as a sort of a surrogate. There are some challenges with that compared to just straight-up cardiac output measurement. Um, but that is possible. And, and some of our listeners may use minimally invasive devices that do um, waveform analysis on arterial lines to be able to estimate cardiac output or stroke volume variation as, as surrogates for fluid responsiveness. Um, so, so there are some tools that we can use, but historically in the ED have not done that a lot. Um, but uh, that would be the best way of doing a volume assessment would be sort of a passive leg raise and ultrasound in, in my mind. That being said, is you can still do a CVP, and I don't think that that's a wrong thing to do. Um, but each listener, each emergency doc needs to have something that they feel that they're um, both talented enough to do and um, that they're reliable to, to determine uh, fluid assessment. That's very Just to, to pull some numbers, Vank, so when you're looking at the IVC, um, there were a variety of numbers that I had learned, and at the time it seemed very concrete. And then now it's sort of is it collapsible? How do you, you know, how do you in real time make that decision? That's an exceptional question, Alex. And I agree with you. It started out very straightforward, and the waters are incredibly muddy right now with IVC ultrasound. There's IVC distensibility indexes, collapsibility index measurements of the max and min and all different ways to measure it that are proposed in the literature. I keep it pretty simple, assuming that the patient is not mechanically ventilated. We're looking at somebody who we don't worry about abnormal cardiac mechanics necessarily. Then in general, in my practice, if the IVC collapses more than 50% with inspiration, um, and it has a small caliber, I tend to believe that's 
more likely to be hypovolemia, assuming that everything else fits as well. But there's a lot more discussion and layers that we could get into of that. And then Casey, when we talk about passive leg raise, I'm looking up some numbers because I, I don't use this enough and I, I want to start using it. So I'm ball parking, parking some numbers, but it says average around 40. What numbers are you are you using to say this patient might be more fluid responsive versus not? Yeah, I think it's the direction of the trend more than the absolute number. So okay. if cardiac output goes up, when you do that, okay. when you do a passive leg raise, then they're going to potentially be fluid responsive. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I can make this simpler than okay. these fancy let's, things. Let's do it. So when you do a passive leg raise, what you're really doing is you're immediately giving about 300 milliliters of fluid back to the heart. Okay. And, I, and the thought from the ICU side and from the people that developed this is, is that, well, this is great because you don't have to give fluid that could potentially be dangerous for the person. I, there's almost no patient that we take care of that can't handle 250 milliliters of fluid quickly given. And so that's the trick is that if you really want to give a fluid challenge to these folks, if you want a 250, 500, whatever it is, it's, uh, you know, uh, I think that that can of Diet Cola in front of you, Vank, is 350 milliliters. Uh, and so yeah, we, we, we maybe overthink a little bit the fluid uh, overload question. I'm and, actually drowning in fluid. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I think if you, if you take a small volume and you're at the bedside and you watch the patient's heart rate and blood pressure and you give them the fluid quickly, I mean over a few minutes, um, then, then you're going to have just as the same thing as a passive leg raise without having to measure cardiac output. And, and I, uh, I think – we get less hung up about the amount of fluid that we give than maybe some other some other groups. Um, and I'll be honest, it's our job to give the fluid. Uh, uh, I give a uh, I gave a talk a number of years ago with one of my mentors, Dr. Ugi Gajic, who I'm sure you know from our ICU practice here. And we we went to Bosnia, his home country, and and in Europe they're much more fluid restrictive sort of than we are here. And so. We talked about giving 30 milliliters per kilogram of fluid, and they were like, you're going to drown the patient. Um, first of all, uh, in many of those kind of health systems, there's somewhat discoordinated care between emergency departments, ICUs, and medical floors. So they're not always aware of how much fluid the patient has already gotten, and so they tend to underestimate the fluid that was given. But even on top of that, um, uh, what Dr. Guy said to them was, well, it's Casey's job to give the fluid and it's my job to give the Lasix. And I actually think that's a really good description. <laughs> you want to have early fluid in to maintain uh, you know, vital organ perfusion. Uh, and then once you have source control of your infection, once you have popped those buggies and their LPS and all their inflammatory stuff is – has worked its way through and out of the body, then you want to get rid of that extra fluid. Um, and I think that that was a really good description of, of how we can how we kind of coordinate. But we shouldn't say that it's wrong to give that fluid. It's, it's the right thing to do, and then you take it off when you don't need it. Along that journey, as we're talking about volume status, you mentioned pulse pressure, mean arterial pressure. How are, how are you using all of these different numbers? So I'm a pretty simple guy. I historically used um, a lot more probably systolic just blood pressure than I used to or than, than, I, than I should. I, um, I think we have to pay attention to diastolic hypotension as an early sign of, uh, of fluid need or distributive shock. But really MAP is what we are being held accountable for. And um, you can argue about what that MAP cutoff is. Like uh, you can certainly perfuse all of your organs with a map of 60 forever, but the, the agreement is 65 is what we're shooting for. So get to 65 and I keep that as a pretty hard and fast rule. Okay. We've done our history. We've done our exam. What tests are you ordering from the blood for these patients? Sure. So, uh, first of all, you're going to, you want to assess for end organ dysfunction, right? So I, Trapona. So. <laughs> Potentially. Okay. Um, All right. I, Va yes. All I right. gave Vank a heart attack. We should check Vank's <laughs> proponent right now. So uh, I don't do it routinely, but I think it's based on what you think the patient may be at risk for. There are some things that I do routinely. Obviously, I'm going to be checking a creatinine. Okay. Um, I'm going to check blood counts. Um, and we can talk a little bit about white blood cell counts because I think that we overuse them. Uh, in, in these patients a little bit. Serves for the win. No, exactly. <laughs> well, when you define a, a disease by, uh, by a lab test, then <laughs> you're always going to find it's useful. Anyway, um, I do check liver functions. 
in these patients because shock liver is a thing. And when you see someone who has uh, some trans uh, amenitis kind of thing, you like get that. the hepatic function panel. Because I notice in the sepsis order set, there's like a random AST, but it's not everything. You get... You get a hepatic function panel? Um, I, not always. Okay. Uh, so, okay. Every, what I do always okay. is uh, a blood count, uh, a basic metabolic panel, uh, an AST, uh, an INR, because the synthetic function okay. of the liver like is it. really, really important. And the INR is actually one of those things when the INR goes up and you're not anticoagulated, that is a highly indicative um, finding for severe sepsis. Um, and then uh, I get blood cultures and a lactate. You'll notice there's some things missing there. Uh, I do not get CRP, sed rate, procalcitonin, anything like that in these patients. And there's some reason for that. Uh, if you talk to our residents they'll, and you say, what's Dr. Clement's least favorite blood test? They'll, <laughs> they all know it's the CRP uh, because it never changes management. And nobody can tell me what truly abnormal versus normal, something you're going to do something different with. Or I find it changes management sometimes unnecessarily. Yeah. Like, it's high, it's scary, now you can't go home. <laughs> you have to go to the ICU. Yeah. Now you need an MRI, where we wouldn't have done that otherwise. But um, So you don't do those. Even the procalcitonin, I vaguely remember a conversation several years ago where there was some optimism surrounding procalcitonin. Yeah, so the story of procalcitonin is really interesting. Uh, and it, it, it has some uses, um, but they're not nearly what the, the, the uh, lab test company hoped that they would be. So the intent was uh, when you do a procalcitonin, if you, it's very low, it's unlikely to be a bacterial infection. That's the intent. And so the hope was is that they could get, a, get this test and then not have to give antibiotics to a, a group of patients. So let's just walk down that road a little bit. <laughs> let's journey. Let's journey. <laughs> let's say that you can do that with 97% sensitivity. But again, remember that sepsis is highly morbid, it is very common, and it's very time sensitive. And so even if you have very high sensitivity, we're still talking about hundreds or thousands of people a year that you're going to be withholding antibiotics from in their critical illness state. What you're saying is 97% of the time we land the plane, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. 97% of the time the plane will land. That's pretty good. Um, and so what we're looking for is really what modern air carriers is, which is the, the you know, there's it's extremely safe because it's essentially 100%. And so that test doesn't exist at this time. And so I would not get it because I'm not going to withhold antibiotics. So where is procalcitonin helpful? Well, I was, I was excited a couple of years ago when they did a, a study called the PROACT trial to try to differentiate um, respiratory illness that's infectious versus not infectious. So we're talking COPD patients, for example, or heart failure patients where we see them and they're, we call them multifactorial dyspnea. Um, but the thought was, is could we see who needs antibiotics for their respiratory illness? And it actually didn't really perform well enough there either to change practice. So where it is useful is in early de-escalation of antibiotics in some of these patients in the ICU or on the floor. So you have a pneumonia patient, you're giving them antibiotics, they're clinically improving. Two days later, we get a procalcitonin. If it's very low, it's likely safe to stop the antibiotics at that point. That's where it has, I think, the best clinical use currently. Now, there are some things coming down the pike that are potentially better um, or, or very interesting. Certainly, there's uh, at least one product on the market now to try to differentiate viral versus bacterial infection. Not with the goal to withhold antibiotics, but with the idea of it's a piece of information in the puzzle that we can use. Um, and there's some coming down that I have, we've been a site testing, looking at host immune responses to be able to not only differentiate viral and bacterial infection, but also patients who are at risk for critical illness and not. So a prognostic markers. Um, and I think that'll be really exciting if it works. So that's the blood testing. Who are you getting urine testing on? <laughs> this is where we're going to have this. This is where the IDSA people are going to come through the through the microphone after <laughs> us, um, because the, and I've, I I love our infectious disease colleagues, but they very firmly believe not to get urines on people unless they have symptoms, and uh, and my argument it's not is not just them. In full disclosure, 
I, this is one of my... I, I've been a resident under Van Camp. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's good. I'm, I think we do too many urines, yeah. so I'll agree with you there. I will say in someone who's critically ill, they're criti- the most likely source for a bacterial infection is the urine. And so I think somebody who's critically ill, it is not unreasonable to get a urine it, for a couple of reasons. And, and I actually think that this helps antibiotic stewardship, not hurts it. You're going to give this person an antibiotic anyway because they're critically ill. If you get a sterile site culture from the urine and, it, and, and you know that it's E. coli, you don't have to give vancomycin for two weeks, right? So I actually think that if you have somebody who – it gets back to the same idea that we said with the, the Merv Singer versus Casey Clemens. Is it infection with badness or is it badness with infection? The urine is a part of badness with infection for me. It's the most common bacterial infection source that we have in sepsis patients. And so if somebody's critically ill, I'm getting a urine. Sorry, IDSA. So we've gotten urine, blood cultures, some blood work. What about radiography? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you remember when uh, Dr. Eric Hess was here a number of years ago, uh, but he tried to come up with a uh, clinical decision rule for who didn't need a chest x-ray and chest pain. I was on that. You were on the study, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, and so what, what the, the denominator for that value equation is, is that a chest x-ray is super cheap and super safe and gives us a lot of information. And when I said urine was number one for a source of bacterial infection, lungs are number two. And so for a sort of $40 cost to hospital test that has 0.01 millisieverts, the same amount of radiation as a two-hour plane ride or living in Denver, Colorado for two weeks. In the plane that we're going to land. The plane that we're going to land. I think that a critically ill patient with sepsis deserves a chest x-ray as well. So uh, just to follow along that, so that's the testing. The third most common source of bacterial infection in patients is skin and soft tissue. And particularly, you need to flip patients. You're looking for infected bed sores. We need to strip people down. We don't always do that as well as we should. And the fourth most common bacterial infection is abdominal. So here's when we're talking about radiography, here's where you're going to really think I'm crazy. But um, we have done a biobank here where we've looked at patients with sepsis syndromes uh, or, or diseases that mimic sepsis. And what we found as, is the, as the most commonly missed source of infection when we're talking about sepsis, or not missed, but uh, we would diagnose sepsis with an unknown source and later it would be discovered that it was abdominal. Particularly chronic um, uh, bowel ischemia, which doesn't always have pain with it. So there is a patient population. Chronic bowel? So we're saying translocation. Correct. Okay. Yep. So like a vasculopath kind of stuttering uh, stuttering ischemia and they're getting translocation through bowel wall. Yeah, essentially. Okay, cool. so, so abdominal is known to be the fourth most common bacterial source of infection. Okay. Um, but if I have a patient that I really can't find the source on and they're super critically ill, I'm not necessarily saying we have to do an abdominal CT in the ED, though it wouldn't be unreasonable in some patients, but I would say make sure that the antimicrobial treatment that we're giving covers abdominal sources. Mm. So um, you're talking about what the the workup is, and again, back to the idea is I have badness, I'm looking for infection, that's my order of operations. I'm looking in urine, I'm looking in lungs, I'm looking skin and soft tissue, and I'm looking abdominal. I love that. I'm just thinking I have to this point not protocolized how I approach getting an abdomen pelvis CT in these patients. But like you're mentioning, I've had a seemingly lower threshold to get that imaging study. So this is really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, we find infections uh, in there. And it sometimes it's chronic bowel ischemia. Like I said, that's the one that, that throws us because it doesn't always have pain associated yeah. with it. But certainly people have abscesses. They have perforations. They have, and if they're encephalopathic, they may not be able to describe um, uh, you know, uh, the, what they're feeling. And if they're comatose or intubated, they can't always respond to pain in our exam. So it's just something to think about. But when I'm chasing those sources, I, that's what I do, one, two, three, four. So we've got the labs ordered. They're hovering over to give the antibiotic, not immediately, but five seconds after, after it's been scanned. So it's both good for the patient and good for the metric. What kind of fluid are we giving? Um, is, should, should we believe that if we give uh, crystalloid, it's all the same? Uh, am I going to harm 
my patient by giving saline? What is it? What's real? What's hype? Yeah, it's a great. I keep saying it's a great question, but they really are. Thank you. So, um, so first of all, I'm also starting th- every question with, I don't want to sound dumb, but you're like, yes, you are. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> so I think the first question is, is who do you pull the trigger on to give fluids? And I, I think that is a different question than what kind of fluid. And we'll talk about what kind of fluid. Okay. So who do you like, pull the trigger on to give fluid? Because with the SEP1 metric, uh, for the hospitals that have very high performance in that, they're giving a lot of fluid to people th- that don't always need it. So what the metric says and what I would recommend sticking with is that people who absolutely need the fluid are those with hypotension or a lactate greater than four. Other than that, it's going to be based on your clinical gestalt. And hypotension is MAP of 65 or like systolic of 90 or? Uh, systolic less than 90 or a MAP less than 65. Cool. And so those, that's when you need to, to pull the trigger on fluid. If they don't have that, Many other patients still need some fluid, but it's based a little bit more on clinical judgment. Now, if I have somebody that I'm pretty convinced is septic and I'm going to be giving them a highly cytal antibiotic, something like a beta-lactam, I am going to give that person fluid. And I also keep that person in the emergency department for 30 to 45 minutes after I've given the antibiotic. Because... You're popping all of those bugs and you're essentially releasing inflammatory uh, schmutz and people very, very frequently won't have their hypotension until we start to kill the bugs. And and I uh, just from years in practice and quality leadership, I can tell you that those RRTs, those ed, being sent to the unit after the fact, the declining on the floor, a lot of those happen. Um, right after they, we give antibiotics. It's good if it happens in the elevator as they're it's, being... So <laughs> give the ceftriaxone as they're being admitted. Yeah, okay. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> um, so, so I think those people do generally need some fluid because when you have that inflammatory response, you're going to have some amount of vasodilation. And if okay. you don't have fluid in the pipes, you oftentimes will, will drop your pressure. So they need it if they're hypotensive or lactate greater than four. Otherwise, let's use our brains and try to figure out when they need it. What fluid to give? It is very clear in the evidence that lactated ringers is somewhat superior to normal saline as far as metabolic acidosis and kidney outcomes. And, and there is a small mortality benefit as well. I like kidneys and I dislike death. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we, in our shop, we're a normal saline kind of crowd. So our, if, when a nurse reaches for a bag of fluid, what they're grabbing first is, is 0.9, right? Uh, and so is it the end of the world if they got a liter of 0.9 and now you want to give uh, some more for the sepsis fluids that you switch to LR? Absolutely not. So that's what we do. I, I don't really mind if the fluid resuscitation starts with normal saline, and I'm not going to stop the first liter of fluid and switch it to LR. I think it's perfectly fine to, to start with normal saline and then switch to LR. I think once you've made the decision that you think that someone is septic, then LR should be your crystalloid of choice. Now, how do colloids fit into this? The head of starches and, and some of those, they're bad in sepsis. They're clearly associated with worse outcomes. Albumin? Well, see, that's Albumin. I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> so um, there are varying opinions on albumin, uh, and I, I will not weigh in on uh, saying that you can't do albumin because I don't want really angry ICU doctors from Australia sending me, uh, it, you know, doxing me on the internet. <laughs> But I, I, I do think that albumin may have a role in some populations like liver failure patients uh, and the like. I, w- I will say that my go-to is generally LR. And in 15 years, I don't maybe I don't think I've ever given albumin to a sepsis patient <laughs> for the sepsis fluid resuscitation. Now, there are rules within uh, uh, the guidelines on how much to give for albumin. And it's, it is not the same as 30 cc's per kilo for, for the crystalloid. Um, but yeah, like I said, I don't do that. And I wouldn't recommend necessarily because there's not a huge upside to the colloid um, at this point in the literature. Uh, and I think that the crystalloid is a lot cheaper and a lot easier to manage. You can, you can hear it in the description. It's like, what about the albumin? It's like, there might 
someone somewhere might benefit from this thing and it's like I give the crystalloid. It's definitive. If you, if you ever I want to do. totally derail an international conversation <laughs> is you just walk up and go, albumin's awful. Walk away. And like they, the whole place will erupt. They, they'll, 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 be, they'll, be, they'll put on different colored jerseys and get ready to brawl. It's, it's a really controversial discussion. One follow-up question on fluids. How do you weigh in the slow infusion of IV fluids that happened in EMS? Let's say they had a liter wide open, but not pressure bagged in. Yeah. So first of all, you have to account for the volume and, and for the metric back to, to talking about the metric you need to document in your note. If you're going to count that fluid towards the resuscitation, how much fluid was given by EMS, especially if it's not immediately visible in whatever medical record you have. And it's not in ours. And so we have had some of our reported cases quote fail unquote, because we didn't document what the EMS had given. Uh, so I think that that's one low-hanging fruit to do. Um, so I count it as the volume that was given. You don't have to count it towards the timer for the purpose of the metric, um, but you should be aware of what's being given and make sure that you account for it. Now, like I said, I'm pretty pro-fluid, and most patients can can manage. If they got 250 milliliters on the way in from EMS, it it it. I'm probably just going to order their sepsis fluids normally if I think that the patient has is in septic shock. When you look at how much fluid patients actually get, it's more than the 30 milliliters per kilogram. Uh, if they're in real shock, uh, a lot of the studies would show, so for example, process promise and arise, the early hours of resuscitation, those patients, many of them got 50 to 60 milliliters per kilogram. All right, so I'm going to give you some, some trials and you're going to give me the, the pearl. Uh, so process. So process was the American unbundling, unbundling. Uh, trial. Unbundling, okay. right? Uh, it was the first to be published, I think, uh, in 2014. Uh, and it immediately translated to care in the United States. The pearl for this is that pre-intervention, before the, those patients were randomized and put into the trial arm based on fluid, they had already received 30 milliliters per kilogram from the ED before they went to further fluid resuscitation after the fact. So that was that would be my pearl. The, the standard of care uh, from a fluid standpoint is different in 2014 than it was in 2001. Okay. And I'm liking this. I'm seeing some ED docs. I see Ely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This was very much a collaborative thing, and um, uh, Derek Angus from Pittsburgh did a great job. He, he's been a huge proponent of having ED ICU trained folks. After each of the studies that Alex calls out and we hear from Casey, I'm going to take a short segment to go over the details of that study. So let's talk about the process trial. This refers to a publication by Dr. Yeely and others published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014 where PROCESS is an acronym for Protocolized Care for Early Septic Shock. This was a multi-center randomized trial of 31 academic hospitals in the United States with at least 40,000 annual visits to those emergency departments. The patients had to be adults and had two SERS criteria minimum and be suspected of having an infection. They had to have had refractory hypotension or hypoperfusion as evidenced by a serum lactate of four or more. To be refractory, the protocol was initially inclusive of patients who had had 20 cc's per kilogram of crystalloid and were still showing signs of hypotension or hypoperfusion. Midway through, the protocol was changed to allow patients to have received one liter of crystalloid over 30 minutes and then showing continued signs of hypotension or hypoperfusion. In the supplement, as Casey highlights, when you look back after enrollment, the patients who were enrolled had received a median of 30 cc's per kilogram of crystalloid, just as he mentioned. And the range, in fact, was from 10 cc's to 50 cc's per kilogram prior to actually enrolling in the intervention part of the study. The patients were then randomized into three groups, and this is a distinction from the future trials that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But three groups, one-to-one-to-one -one -one randomization into a group that was based on early goal-directed therapy, a second group that had protocolized standard care in a new system that I will go over in a moment, and a third arm that was usual care as determined by the physician caring for the patient. 
The early goal-directed therapy group, as we will see in the other studies that we talk about as well, all are directed as Dr. Rivers outlines in his original paper, as we've mentioned before. The protocol-based standard therapy group, or the new protocol that this study launched, was a six-hour resuscitation goal set where the patients were expected to have two large large meaning 18 gauge or larger peripheral IVs placed. If that was not possible, then central venous access was established. Fluids were then given in 500 to 1 liter boluses with reassessment of the systolic pressure and a shock index. Again, these are fluid boluses after the initial fluid that was given before the patient could be enrolled. If the patient was still hypotensive, more fluids were given until the patient was felt to be fluid replete or overloaded. At that point, if they were still hypotensive or showing signs of hypoperfusion, vasopressors were initiated. Once the blood pressure had then been increased to greater than 100 millimeters of mercury, then isotonic fluids were started at an infusion of 250 to 500 cc's per hour. The patient was reassessed repeatedly for signs of hypoperfusion characterized by vital signs, lactate over 4, modeling, oliguria, or altered mentation. Okay, so during the five years of enrollment, the study enrolled 1,341 patients, 439 of whom were randomized to the early goal-directed therapy arm, 446 to this new protocolized treatment arm, and 456 to the physician-directed usual care group. The groups are really mostly similar in characterizations, except to me and my eye, they didn't do any statistical comparison, but I see that the rate of intra-abdominal infections is slightly higher in the early goal-directed therapy group, at nearly 16% versus 11% in the usual care and 13% in the new protocol group. Also, the new protocol group had 3% of patients determined to, in the end to not have had an infection, whereas the early goal-directed therapy group only had 1%. And that translates to about 10 to 15 patients, which really could swing the outcomes of the primary outcome in the long run. All right, so what happened? By day 60, 92 people in the early goal-directed therapy group had died. This is 21%. 81 people in the new protocol group had died, which is 18%, and 86 people in the usual care group had died, which was 19%. So 21%, 18%, 19% in the three groups. They report numerous other endpoints, including organ dysfunction, 90-day mortality, and more, which I would refer you to their paper for the details of. You can see the reference in the show notes if you need it. In general, they are all very slightly different from each other, but the authors appropriately conclude that there was no statistical, statistically significant advantage to either protocol-based resuscitation over the treating physician's judgment. Okay, let's get back to Alex's game. All right, so that's process, promise. So promise was the, um, the United Kingdom-based uh, version of the unbundling trials, and the only difference between process and promise was that the length of stay in their emergency departments was like a day and a half in the United Kingdom. Okay. <laughs> for the promise trial, named as an acronym for Protocolized Management in Sepsis Trial, Dr. Mouncey and other researchers, also published in the New England Journal, but in 2015... Their work was to investigate if early goal-directed therapy in the first six hours was clinically superior to usual care for patients with early septic shock in England. They performed a multi-center randomized controlled trial in a variety of National Health Service EDs. Again, they used comparable inclusion criteria to the process trial. Over a three-year period, they enrolled 339 people into the early goal-directed therapy group and 332 people into the usual care group. Looking at the primary outcome of death at 90 days, 29% mortality was seen in both groups. They concluded that early goal-directed therapy is not associated with a mortality benefit from usual care. PROMISE was different than the PROCESS trial in that not only was PROMISE set in England as opposed to the United States, but PROMISE only had two randomization arms, as I mentioned, as opposed to PROCESS, which had three. 
Also, as Casey mentioned, of course, the ED throughput times were much longer in the PROMISE study. Okay, Alex, let's keep going. All right, process, PROMISE, ARISE. So ARISE was from the Australasian group, and they did something a little different that was very valuable in the unbundling, is in addition to the intervention arms of early goal-directed therapy and usual care, they also said you cannot measure SCVO2. And what they found is that it had no effect. So it was, you know, when we take about the things in early goal-directed therapy that we're getting rid of, um, SCVO2, for most indications, is dead and in the ground. And that was really partly thanks to a rise. There, there wasn't value in these patients to continuing to monitor SCVO2 based on how we treat sepsis in 2013 compared to 2001. The ARISE trial stands for the Australasian Resuscitation and Sepsis Evaluation Study and was also published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014. This study aimed to compare early goal-directed therapy to usual care with an outcome of 90-day all-cause mortality. This was a prospective randomized trial involving 51 hospitals throughout Australia and New Zealand primarily, but to a lesser degree included Finland, Hong Kong, and Ireland. This again was a study of adult patients with suspected infection and two or more SERS criteria and who had refractory hypotension or hypoperfusion, similarly defined as the other studies. Um, Again, despite one liter of crystalloid over a one-hour period, then they could be enrolled. The patients were randomized to a one-to-one ratio between the two groups, early goal-directed therapy group and a usual care group. The caveat, as Casey mentioned, was that in the usual care group, clinicians were not permitted to use SCVO2 measurements within the six-hour intervention period. The group enrolled 792 patients assigned to the early goal-directed therapy group and 796 patients assigned to the usual care group. The primary outcome of death in that 90-day period was 18.6% in the early goal-directed therapy group and 18.8% in the usual care group. As a result, the study authors again concluded that in this study, early goal-directed therapy was not associated with any meaningfully significant decrease in mortality compared with usual care. Back to you, Alex. So process, promise, and arise. The outcome is we don't need an SCVO2. We don't need a CVP. We are giving thirty some volume of helpful fluid. Is that kind of yeah? Pr- right. So again, I think the really helpful parts of those studies is partly in the supplemental data, okay. which is pre-randomization and or baseline uh, uh, demographics of these patients before they're randomized, before they're getting these trial arms. These patients all got blood cultures, they all got lactates, they all got antibiotics, and they all got 30 milliliters per kilogram before they went into the trial. And so they did well. <laughs> Do you hear that? That's all the procedural file residents crying. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah, so you, let's you talk all about. were you all were the group that got the lines. Mine was I was rotating through ICUs and they were saying CVPs are useless. We don't we're never doing that again. And so that we we were we came in the era after swan gans so like that was gone for us whereas the previous generation they put even twice as many lines as we did so everything in medicine i like to say is a pendulum and it swings right so Around that 2014 range, we swung, uh, swung, swung. We swung way far back from doing a lot of central lines, and at the same time, there's been a little, there's been some safety evidence um, on peripherally delivered vasopress, delivered vasopressors, and so they haven't done a ton of uh, of central lines. Now, I will say, I think that has swung too far. Uh, and I think when we we're very quick at transitions of care from the emergency department to the ICU, and even in our system, um, we looked a number of years ago at how long it takes for someone to get that central line in place if we don't do it in the ED. And so, yeah, we're giving per- peripherally delivered vasopressors, and it's probably fine for a while, um, but it's at least two and a half hours longer for that patient to get a central line if they do it in the ICU than if they do it in the ED. And so that pendulum needs to swing back a little bit and we need to take ownership of 
of doing the vasopressors and of keeping that patient normotensive as quickly as possible, um, as opposed to just kicking it down the road. Now, if there's 45 people in my waiting room uh, and uh, and everything is the wheels are falling off the bus. Can it be done in the ICU? Absolutely. And that's where the residents get disappointed again. But I am an advocate for, um, I think, not delaying those lines for vasopressors when it's indicated. We're talking about central lines, and that's the next thing. We've given our volume of fluid, maybe 30 cc's per kilo, and what's going to go through that central line? What, what presser is the right presser here? So first of all, don't wait for the central line to start the presser. Yes, so right. start the presser. Get a, you know, um, the antecubital fossa is better than the hand. <laughs> so uh, get big veins and a big IV and start the pressers and try to get them uh, to a MAP of 65 while you're doing the line. Certainly if the MAP is less than 50, uh, I think you've got to do it. Um, and, and sometimes we start pressers early for, for things like that. In the ICU here, um, it doesn't matter how much fluid you've gotten. If you have a map less than 50, they're kind of starting vasopressors. And, and I think that there's some improvements that we potentially could make in that direction, similar to what they're doing. But let's say you've given the fluid, you're going to start a presser. The evidence would say clearly that norepinephrine is the best. Um, you know, certainly in Europe, they love their dopamine. Uh, we don't do that here, and there's some reasons. It's arrhythmogenic. Uh, it doesn't get people to the map as quickly. Uh, so norepinephrine is your go-to for everybody as your first presser. We don't do that here because it's the worst, is what he's saying. He's like, we don't do it here because there's all these problems. We now, just now I'm going to get docked. <laughs> now I'm going to get docked <laughs> by the, uh, the European and the Australian. <laughs> no, I think I think they've come around too, though. I think norepinephrine is pretty clearly the 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 best um, first line presser in in sepsis, no doubt. Okay. I struggle sometimes when I'm giving fluids and every time a bolus goes in, the pressures bump, but there's recurrent hypotension. Do you keep giving more boluses of fluids or do you start a presser? So there's a U-shaped curve if you look at the volume that patients get and their outcomes. So uh, that it, you can keep giving fluid if they continue to be responsive to it to a point. If you're over 50 or 60 milliliters per kilogram, and again, I know that sounds like a ton of fluid, but these are really sick people mm -hmm. we're talking about. Absolutely. And so if you're over that level, you, I think you got to cut your losses and stop at that point and start a presser because you've filled their pipes. It's a, it's a vascular tone and cardiac output question at that time. And so I, if, you, if you start getting really up there, I, I wouldn't do more than that. If we're in that stratosphere, we've maxed out our fluids, we were on our presser, still hypotensive. Are you going to a steroid at that point? Ooh, the steroid question. Man, you guys are asking all the controversial things. So there has been more, at least more funding and more research into steroids in sepsis than is probably reasonable. And there probably is some um, uh, patient population that benefits from steroids from an anti-inflammatory aspect, but how to identify those is difficult. What you're describing is in a patient who probably has an adrenal insufficiency at this point, um, are we giving a steroid for that? I do. For refractory hypotension, I'll give hydrocortisone. Um, but it's not a steroid for an anti-inflammatory effect. It's a steroid for the blood pressure effect. For the anti-inflammatory effect, I actually don't think that that falls to the ED unless you're keeping someone in an EICU or something like that for days on end. Um, remember how steroids work, and uh, they take a long time to take effect. We don't tend to think about it, but really a steroid is not going to have an anti-inflammatory effect for 9 to 12 hours after you give it. And certainly if we know something's going to be effective, we should do it earlier than later. But we don't know that necessarily. And so I generally defer the idea of steroids as an anti-inflammatory to the ICU. But if someone has refractory hypotension, it is very reasonable to give a stress dose of steroids. Okay, we kind of skipped maybe the most important therapy, antibiotics. Tell me how you approach picking your initial antibiotic or antimicrobial regimens for these patients. Yeah, and so again, similar to this flipping the flipping the script of infection with badness to badness with infection, I do the same thing with antibiotics. When I'm considering what broad spectrum antibiotics to give, I'm not I'm not personally just thinking about treating the 
what I am treating, I'm thinking about if with an antibiotic regimen, what am I not treating? And am I worried about that kind of a, an infection? I like that. And so, um, for example, is, is what we've decided to do have anaerobic coverage? And if not, am I worried about a possible anaerobic source of infection? Right. So uh, I had a patient this weekend who had a complicated deep tissue infection of the foot um, with abscess and evolving sepsis. And so the plan um, from the evening team, I came on at night, the plan from the evening team was uh, ceftriaxone and vancomycin, which is very reasonable. to co So the vancomycin is going to cover your gram positives. It's not highly cytal. It's going to cover MRSA. Your ceftriaxone is going to get some gram positives, and it's going to be highly cytal, and it's going to get your atypical gram negatives, which we know are about 10% of soft tissue infections. But it's not going to – and none of those are going to get anaerobic infections. And when we're talking about a deep tissue abscess, it's probably polymicrobial. I am worried about anaerobes there. So then we added on an anaerobic coverage. Um, and so I, I, I think that is – uh, the I, I feel like that's a plan on how to do this. Is what aren't you covering, and is that okay? I assume you're asking the same question then about pseudomonas. Uh, I am. If somebody's critically ill, because pseudomonas is so common in our patient population, even in not even community acquired infection. I mean, people have pseudomonas. Um, I generally am starting with pseudomonal coverage, which we can then back off if we get uh, a, a, a culture that shows something different, um, with some exceptions. I don't always do that for a urinary uh, source, for example, if I know the patient has a history that doesn't include refractory pseudomonal infections. Let's sidestep and talk about some less common or maybe not at all therapies. What is your take on vitamin C? Well, as an author of the Victus trial, <laughs> I can tell you that – so there was a lot of excitement about vitamin C, right? So there was a doc in Virginia who showed that if he gave vitamin C and steroids to his sepsis patients, he felt like they had really phenomenal outcomes with a number needed to treat that was very small. And so a number of studies have come along behind that. The one that we participated in was called the Victus trial, um, uh, which – was a study that had uh, an adaptive design so that we would stop if we proved that it worked. Um, and it was a multi-center st uh, study and it didn't really work. And I think that all of the other studies that have come out have also shown that it hasn't really had a benefit. Um, so I would not advocate its use. What's really interesting about vitamin C and infection is more work has gone in to debunking the myth about vitamin C than has ever reasonably been necessary. So where did this myth of vitamin C come from? I don't know if you guys know the know this story. So one of the smartest men of the 20th century is a guy named Linus Pauling. He's won two Nobel Prizes, right? Like, I mean, how many people win two Nobel Prizes? Okay, I know Casey probably wasn't expecting an answer, but as soon as he asked the question, my mind needed to know. If you're like me and you need to know how many people have won two Nobel Prizes in history, well, they are known as the Magnificent Four. And we're talking about Frederick Sanger, Linus Pauling, John Bardeen, and one of my heroes, Marie Curie. All right, let's get back to his, his point, which is a fantastic one. And so uh, he firmly and vehemently believed that vitamin C helped the common cold. And we spent millions and millions of dollars showing that that was not the case. And you know what the outcome is? When I get sick, my wife and my mother tell me to drink orange juice. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, it's just something that is ingrained in our minds, partly because like one of the world's smartest people said that it was something that was good for infection, but it's really not. Sorry, mom. <laughs> Another one that I want to ask about is transfusion. We were doing this a lot during early goal-directed therapy days. Are you still transfusing any of these patients? And it's in the so, oxygen delivery equation. Right. And right. So, so what are you using as your trigger? Yeah. So early goal-directed therapy and surviving sepsis campaign version one both said to transfuse people through a hemoglobin of 10. Um, and we still do transfuse some patients to higher hemoglobin levels if they have a heart failure history or things like that. Um, but it really 
was based on the idea that there's not great tissue delivery of oxygen um, in sepsis. There is also not great tissue metabolism of oxygen separate from just blood flow. So the the use of oxygen in the tissues is not solely based on delivery to the tissues from hemoglobin and sepsis, first of all. Second of all, there wasn't any evidence behind that. And, and there, after the fact, when we started to look at quality improvement, what, what wasn't happening for, where, where were people falling down and failing at early goal-directed therapy? Um, it, there was a few places and the transfusion to 10 was one of them and those patients still did fine. And so in the second version of the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines that were uh, released, they did away with the hemoglobin of 10 requirement and said, do it just like you do other patients. And I, I, that's what I do. So if somebody has a heart failure history and they're not getting good oxygen delivery to the tissues, I would consider a transfusion. But other than that, I'm not doing it until they're less than seven. A question for both of you. What is the role for ECMO in septic shock? I would, I would say uh, it's not very clear, but it's particularly in patients with myocardial depression. And so patients who remain in shock and we, sh we show a new low EF. And for a variety of reasons, we think that um, they have acute myocardial depression. Um, that would be a patient who might benefit from mechanical circulatory support. Like yeah. meningococcus. Yes. The other one, the other one, there is one other population that you could consider, and it's not so much an ED problem as an ICU problem, but remember that ARDS is a big complication of sepsis, and we actually probably underappreciate this in the ED. We see bilateral infiltrates, and we immediately think, oh, it's pneumonia. And, and that's actually a disservice to the patient because our management of the respiratory failure may be putting them on non-invasive, and non-invasive is not good in ARDS, so you should intubate those patients. Um, but ARDS patients, particularly severe ARDS patients, may require like VA ECMO for pulmonary support um, in some situations. But again, that doesn't usually fall to the ED. All right. Let's change gears and let's talk about disposition. I think at the extremes, this is very easy for us. The patients on pressors, et cetera, they're coming in. The patients who are clearly well are going to go home. In the middle, do you have any tips or tricks that you use to try and help make your decisions on disposition? Yeah, so sepsis is a highly dynamic disease process, and it moves quickly from one, one place to another. And so, first of all, when we started some of our quality improvement efforts here at Mayo, we thought that everybody that we gave high-volume fluid resuscitation might require ICU care. And that turns out not to be the case. If you have hypotension, you give your 30 per kilo, and they're normotensive, and they're better, and they've gotten their antibiotics, and you've watched them after their antibiotics so their little popped bugs don't you know, cause a shock state, those people can absolutely go to the floor. On the opposite end, if you have somebody who is um, tenuous and you're going to give them their antibiotics, you need to watch them, like I said. And so I, I, this is not a patient population that you should rush out of your department, right? So there's a lot of patients that we have to move really quickly and that it's completely clear what their level of care is going to be. Uh, but this is one patient population that you can't just rush. Sorry for your throughput metrics, but it's true. I think this is maybe the most fun question that I have for you. And that is, if we look into the future, what is the role for AI and other tech in the future of the way we care for sepsis? Mm. So we are living in an age where there is so many data points that are being gathered on patients. If you look at patients on monitors in the ED and the ICU, potentially with an arterial line, potentially with central line monitoring, there's just a flood of data points, thousands and thousands an hour, to the point that there is no way that I or you or anybody can pay attention to all of them. We're not even going to see all of them. Um, and so I think that there is a huge role for machine learning and or observation over the fact to either first step, call out what are the abnormals that we may not be seeing, and second of all, what is the pattern within those variables that really is associated with not outcome? And we've done this, right? So we've, we know like we can predict, we can predict who's going to die a lot of the time. That doesn't help me. I need to know what I need to do about it. And so certainly AI has a role in that. Um, 
outside of AI, I also think that there's a role for understanding sepsis endotypes at a higher level. So what's a sepsis endotype? That, right? So sepsis, uh, sepsis is a syndrome, as we described at the beginning. It is a group of symptoms and signs that define a disease process. But the mechanisms underlying that process are much more complicated than anybody ever thought that they would be when they started this, right? So we mentioned steroids and sepsis. So everybody thought, oh, if we give steroids, it'll just fix sepsis. Doesn't do that. And so there are sepsis endotypes for uh, discrete mechanisms that are leading to that sepsis syndrome. And there is a group of patients who probably does respond to steroids in that way. There's a group of patients that probably does need to be monitored more closely for DIC, for example. There's a group of patients that um, may need different levels of fluid, either more or less, based on what is the underlying mechanism that's causing their sepsis. And so part of that is AI and machine learning. Part of that is continued research with um, a practical clinical application of what do we do, how do we differentiate those different sepsis endotypes and how do we treat patients differently um, based on that to improve their outcomes. I love that. How, what's the time range you anticipate this coming to the bedside? So we've known about sepsis endotypes for a long time. Um, now, different groups uh, group them differently. Um, I don't think that we have a way to differentiate those in the emergency departments very easily, um, but it is coming. And I am aware of applicable products that are going to try to test this in, uh, in point-of-care testing. So like less than an hour turnaround time to try to define some of these um, sepsis populations. What the hard part with that is, is okay, we've identified a different endotype. What is the intervention that's appropriate for that? That's going to take some time to figure out as clinical research, not just the basic science. Okay, let's take a moment to summarize the amazing conversation we have had. First, it's easy to get confused in sepsis for many reasons. One of them is that there are multiple consensus conferences where the disease is iteratively being defined. There's the surviving sepsis campaign, which is relatedly synthesizing the best evidence at any given time and advocating for implementation globally. And finally, the National Quality Forum and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in the United States have issued the SEP1 bundle, which has itself been revised and reissued over time. And so this creates a potential for confusion if you're like me and Alex. To review the most current state of the situation is that the diagnosis of sepsis involves suspected infection with signs of end organ dysfunction as identified by two or more score on the SOFA or QSOFA scores. Shock is determined by hypotension of MAP under 65 or systolic under 90 millimeters of mercury or a lactate of four or more. Also, the current SEP1 bundle expectation from the U.S. government is that in the first three hours after sepsis is identified, a patient is having a lactate drawn, blood cultures drawn, antibiotics are being administered. If the patient is in shock as diagnosed via the international consensus definition I just provided, then they should also receive 30 cc's of crystalloid per kilogram. In six hours from the sepsis identification, if the initial lactate was over two, then there should be a recheck. Also, if the patient is still hypotensive or hypoperfusing, then vasopressors should be initiated and volume status reassessments should be documented. Remember that for the quality measure in the United States, the final diagnosis when the patient leaves the hospital is the trigger that might include your patient in the reported data. And so if you think your patient may have early sepsis, consider getting compliant with the bundle early. If you have any concerns about the safety of giving fluids to your patient who by the quality measure would otherwise be instructed to receive them, find out the specifics of how you can document your decision appropriately to not give the fluids so that your hospital doesn't get dinged. We talked about how the fluids of choice in sepsis is lactated ringers, but certainly don't sweat it if the patient already received some saline before you get there. There is also a role for albumin potentially, but that's controversial in the U.S. and potentially less controversial overseas. 
Also, be sure to document the fluids given by EMS and include that in your decision-making and in your documentation. Pick your antibiotics based on what you're concerned the patient may be dealing with, such as pseudomonas, anaerobes, etc., and go broad and go quickly. As far as testing goes, you can consider if you want to use the SOFA score, which involves some exam assessments as well as blood work. You could use the QSOFA score, which is an alternative designed to be able to be used anywhere, anytime. Also, even though not formally part of the third consensus definition, Casey, Alex, and I all use the SERS criteria still in our diagnosis because it can help us to be more of a safety net to establish early, se- early sepsis diagnoses and get early antibiotics to the patients who need it most. If the patient is still hypotensive despite fluids, don't hesitate to start norepinephrine. Consider stress-dose steroids if you think that there may be a component of adrenal insufficiency causing refractory hypotension. And if your patient is anemic, be sure to consider giving blood. Be sure to watch for and ask about altered mental status when taking a history and doing your examination. Also, while doing your history and exam, look for the primary source of infection, whether it's urinary being the most common, pulmonary, second, comma, skin and soft tissue such as sacral decubitus ulcers comes in third, and then don't forget about intra-abdominal sources of infection as a potential fourth common site or source of infection. Let's take a moment to recap things that are not necessary anymore or that are not helpful. First, it begins with the protocolized bundle of early goal-directed therapy. The care we deliver in our resuscitations has evolved such that the actual protocolized Early goal-directed therapy, when studied by the PROMISE, PROCESS, and ARISE trials, really doesn't seem to show benefit. Instead, use the parts of the protocol that you think are necessary based on the patient you're seeing in front of you. There was a lot of excitement about vitamin C and thiamine, etc., but studies such as the VICTUS trial are showing that that's not helpful and not effective. There was also excitement about procalcitonin, sedimentation rate, C-reactive proteins, and other markers that might predict a worse outcome or help us to identify what's going on with our patients. It seems that procalcitonin really might be beneficial in its trend, especially later in the inpatient side when it comes back to normal to reassure that it's safe to go ahead and stop doing things. But none of these have really been the panacea we were hoping for. Okay. Casey, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk with us. And when you and I were doing early goal-directed therapy for our patients, I really felt empowered to make a difference. And that feeling had fallen away of late. But now, after talking with you and feeling your energy, learning more about where this diagnosis and condition has evolved and where it's going... I have a bit of renewed excitement and optimism, and I can't wait to bring it to the bedside again. So thank you so much for reinstilling that within me and for our audience. Oh, no problem. I absolutely love sick people. That's the best, the the best. Having these patients where we kind of know what we do really matters and that it's timely and that we are, we're sailing the ship on this. This is, you know, all of these guidelines, all of these definitions, many of them were made not by emergency physicians. But it turns out that the timing that the care requires, this 100% is our wheelhouse. And we are the experts in this. So we need to own it. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda.